You're listening to Brave New Space. I'm Robert. I'm Keegan. And we're going to share with you all things new space and beyond. Why we started this podcast. Brave New Space is about sharing insights and perspectives on the business and commerce of all things space to global investors and entrepreneurs. And we want to encourage more investors, entrepreneurs, and policymakers to consider participating in this space renaissance. And today, we're very excited. We have my good friend, Megan Crawford, partner with Space Fund, and also the host and co-founder of podcast Mission Eve, guesting with us today. Welcome, Megan. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So we've we've known each other for now, gosh, I'm going to say over a decade. Uh, ish, yeah. <laughs> Way back from the, you know, the, you know, New Space Business Plan Competition Day Space Investment Summit. Tell us about your, you know, your efforts essentially in bringing financial literacy to the new space sector and, and, and why you're particularly passionate about that. That's a great question and a kind of a great place to start. I actually was doing my master's in business administration at Rice University here in Houston, and I had a really great career counselor. I was getting my dual degree in finance and entrepreneurship and was looking at just taking a boring finance job, you know, kind of one of those typical MBA jobs. And my career counselor really kind of set me straight. She said, no, Megan, you need to spend some time thinking, you know, what are you really passionate about? What's, what, what are you going to get out of bed happy to do every morning? Um, you shouldn't spend this much time and effort getting this kind of degree just to have a miserable job, right? Find something you're really passionate about. And I think those are great words to live by. And I'd always been fascinated by space. That had always been kind of my my passion, that things that I watch documentaries about on the weekend and all the rest after having had my uh, hopes dashed of being an astronaut when I was quite a bit younger. And I started to really look into it and, and kind of poke around. And at that time, you know, this was a little over a decade ago, this kind of space startup ecosystem was was just starting to really seem legitimate. It was just starting to really kind of get its legs under it. And so at that time, Elon hadn't had a successful launch yet. So uh, there weren't really many success stories around about space startup companies that all still seemed a little crazy. But at Rice University, they run the world's largest and richest business plan competition for, for students. And I had been involved in that there at Rice and and saw what a huge benefit it was not only in the cash prizes that were awarded, but in the process that the students had to go through of practicing to pitch to venture capital and the, the kind of resources that were made available through the business plan competition that made those companies that much stronger when they went out to actually pitch to investors. And, and looking around the space industry, I noticed that that was something that these kind of brilliant engineers and scientists are, are really great at a lot of things, but maybe not so great at speaking to investors because it's kind of a completely different language. And so that's when I got involved with the Space Frontier Foundation. Since 2009, I have been in some way running or organizing the new space business plan competitions. And over the years, we've added a lot of educational components to that to really make it a program that's focused on helping the space entrepreneur become financially literate on the one hand, and then on the other hand, you know, once you understand your audience, learning how to effectively communicate with them. So, you know, that's been a passion of mine for for many, many years. One of the other programs that we've worked on is the Space Investment Summit. Robert, I know you've been involved in those, um, I think, even longer than I have. 
And, and that's kind of the other side of the educational component, which is educating the investors on not only the opportunities that are available for investing in, in the space startup ecosystem, but also teaching them how these investments and these companies are different than what they might be used to investing in. There are definitely some, some unique aspects to the industry that if investors understand, they can be much more careful with their capital deployment and much more effective. So for me, it's really just been about bringing those two groups together and educating them on how they can work with each other so that we get more capital flowing into the industry. So Megan, you've set up your, your organization out of uh, Austin, Texas, correct? So we're in Austin and Houston. Uh, we have offices Austin in and both Houston. locations, yeah. Now, for those unfamiliar with the space industry, there has been kind of an interesting, not really even, I wouldn't even call it a competition just yet, but the industry does not have an established home yet. Yet, Like, uh, you know, you would say Silicon Valley is the heart of the tech sector of the United States, American industry based around the Great Lakes. There isn't really something like that defined for the space sector yet. Megan, would you say that what makes uh, Texas a really strong prospect for being kind of the heart of the space sector for you to set up your shop there? That's a good question. So you're right. Space is really, really distributed. And again, in this research that I love to do, one of the things that we looked at was, you know, what is the ge geographical distribution of these over 2000 startups that we're tracking? And right now it's a little over 60% in the U.S., Mm -hmm. And the rest, uh, you know, kind of distributed through the rest of the world with a very strong ecosystem developing in the UK, Luxembourg. We're seeing a lot of great activity in Australia and a couple of other hotspots around the world. But within the US itself, lots of activity in Seattle, Silicon Valley, Los Angeles, Colorado, a, a little bit on the East Coast, but not as much. And I mean, some activity here in Houston, kind of, you'll see activity pop up around the, the NASA centers. Space Florida is doing an excellent job of creating a good startup ecosystem um, around the Kennedy Space Center. But, but there is no kind of definitive location where, where everybody is, as much as uh, a couple of different cities are, are fighting for that right now. One of the reasons that we set up here in Texas is because my partner and I are both Texans, uh, and so <laughs> it's home for us. Also, there is access, access to capital and resources here. And uh, Texas has some of the best business tax benefits of any state in the country. And so that was definitely a factor as well. You know, but most of my job is spent traveling because those space startups are so dispersed. And I honestly don't see that changing anytime soon. I think that's kind of the nature of the new, the new workforce, right, is that everybody's distributed. So I expect to have a lot more travel in my future. Megan, going back to what you were talking about, about educating new space companies and new space founders uh, for a little bit more financial literacy, what are some of the more common missteps you see founders in this industry make? So there's kind of the, you know, the first level, the first order of mistake are from people who just don't, don't know anything about the venture world or, or the business world. You know, maybe they have a scientific or a technical background. They're really good at, you know, solving technical problems, but they've not had experience running a business before. And this can be people that have worked at very large businesses, maybe their whole career, but they just don't understand startups and the startup and, and financing mentality. And the biggest mistake I, I see people make is that 
they think that just because they have a good idea that their their business is financeable. Mm-hmm. It, your idea might be amazing, but if you don't have the team to execute and if you don't have the financing to execute, your idea will never see the light of day. And so the biggest kind of mistake we see is is not having that well-rounded team and not having that business-focused approach. You've got to build a business uh, and preferably a profitable one (laughs) around that idea. That means talking to customers. And that's kind of the second level mistake that we see with people who are maybe a little bit more mature. They've thought through their business plan. They have a business plan. That's, That's always exciting. But they've not actually gone out and talked to their customers yet. And so without that customer validation of people actually wanting to buy your product, your company's really not investable. So so the kind of first two levels that I would say that you want to go through as a startup before you ever talk to an investor is one, put together a real business plan um, around your idea. And then two, go out and talk to your customers and figure out exactly what their problem is and exactly what the solution that they want is. Turn your technology or your idea into that solution and then go talk to investors once you have a business, once you have the right people on your team, and once you have customer traction, uh, people saying that they actually want to buy your product, not just are interested in your idea. I wish I could say that that was not something I'd heard uh, echoed by a lot of people in this industry uh, who'd been dealing with founders in the aerospace business. But do you feel that those problems are less common today than they were, say, 10, 15 years ago during the uh, middle of, say, the 2000s or even the 90s when this industry first got off the ground? Unfortunately, I think the ratio is probably the same. There's just so many Mm. more companies that you are getting more good companies, you know, because... Well, volume's still a solution. We... (laughs) Yeah, I think I think we're probably sitting at about the same ratios. But I am seeing one thing that I'm seeing that's very different now from 10 years ago is a difference in attitude, a willingness to learn and to change. And and I think that's probably because you can look around the industry right now and you can see startups that are being successful. 10 years ago there weren't many to pattern yourself after, right? And so everybody had their own idea of how it was going to work and kind of dug their heels in the ground. And this is how I'm going to start my business. And and mm. uh, um, I'm going to do it my way. And now you can look around the industry and there's a decade or more of successes and failures to point at. And I'm seeing a lot of kind of second or third generation entrepreneurs entrepreneurs who may have failed a first time and learned this lesson the hard way. So now they've mm. got a different attitude and are, are willing to do things differently and to change. So I have seen a, a difference in attitude. I have seen more and more technical founders willing to take a chief technology officer role and you know let the investors bring in an experienced chief executive officer who has startup experience, right? And instances like that, I think you can put together a, a really excellent business around a technical founder as long as they've got the right attitude and are, are willing to make the changes necessary to turn their idea into a business. Hey, Megan, let me, uh, I'd love to interject a story. If you remember, do you remember a company at one time that was called Nano Satisfy that presented at a, one of the business plan competitions? And that was uh, Peter Platzer's startup. And of course, they pivoted a number of times and now they're, they're known as Spire. But, you know, it was interesting to see, you know, where his sort of uh, his path as an entrepreneur. 
because it was it was a very different business plan back when he was presenting at the competition. Yeah, and it, it's always fun to watch those develop and to watch the kind of tenacity of these entrepreneurs. And and that's again one of the reasons you have to go talk to your customers early. The earlier you talk to your customers, the earlier you can do that pivot in product or business model before you get too far down the line. Cool. Well, Megan, so so you've 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 been participating all, you know all the you know space investment summit you have a marketing company focused on the space sector you did some time with uh, working for as a COO of uh, deep space industries the new space business plan competition and now uh, you've got a, a couple of exciting babies so to speak space fund and mission eve uh, let's talk about space fund can you tell us i think you recently announced some uh, portfolio investments and tell us about those and Maybe how they were how they were selected and, and what your sort of vision for for space fund is. Great, yeah. There's there's a lot there. Um, <laughs> okay, let's uh, let's start at the beginning. If you want to do it chronologically and go back to some of maybe what you learned from you know maybe from DSI Deep Space Industries and how that has informed you know your uh, fund management. Yeah, that's a great question. So you know over the years of a decade now working with the startups at the New Space Business Plan competition, doing the space investment summits, talking to investors. So kind of really seeing things from both sides. And then as you mentioned, I was uh, chief operating officer of one of these space startups, Deep Space Industries, for, for a number of years. And so really got to kind of live it from the inside as well. I often make the joke, you think raising money for an asteroid mining company is hard. Try raising money for a space venture capital fund. <laughs> so I've kind of been in perpetual fundraising mode for the last half decade or so. But um, once DSI was acquired by Bradford Space, you know, a, a lot of the team were moving on to different projects. And as you mentioned, I have a marketing firm, Brand Delta V, that we had spun out of Deep Space Industries a while before the acquisition. And and I was working on that. And I think that's that's a great project. It's still a, a going concern, um, providing kind of dedicated marketing and PR support for these uh, space companies who are typically not as great at the communication side of things. And something that uh, the market desperately needed was uh, more people doing what you're do doing, trying to teach uh, engineering nerds like me, me how to talk to the press. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. So so I, I was working on that project, and Rick Tumlinson, who was a co-founder of Deep Space Industries, and I were, were kind of reminiscing and, and talking about what can we do in the future that would really make a difference? You know, he and I have worked on a lot of projects together over the years and kind of what did we learn from those and what could we do going forward that would make the most positive impact? And my life goal is to see the permanent human settlement of space. And I firmly believe that the only power on earth strong enough to make that happen is the power of free enterprise. Um, it's not going to happen by, by government proxy, right? So as we looked around the industry, kind of the biggest issue that I saw was a lack of smart capital. There's a lot of capital going into the industry compared to 10 years ago, especially. But that capital, capital is very much in kind of a follow-on FOMO mode, if you will, mm. right? Fear of missing out. You're seeing billions yeah. of dollars go into SpaceX now that everybody knows that SpaceX is a viable company. But where's the, the capital that should be investing in what comes next? Mm. And we didn't see that. We saw a lot of capital going into the launch industry. And I recently did a very in-depth analysis on this, and we published a paper at the International Astronautical Cong Congress back in October on the topic of 
oversupply and under demand in the launch industry. This has kind of been a, the big pink elephant in the room uh, throughout the industry for many years now. Space Fund is currently tracking, I think the number today is 131 launch companies around the world. By the time this podcast is published, I'm sure that will be a different number. It changes almost day by day. Yeah. As new companies are added and as some fail. Or fail and end up being resurrected. <laughs> right, right. We've seen all kinds of crazy shenanigans. But the reality is, and our analysis and several other people who have analyzed this market really agree, is that there's probably room in the market for no more than 10 launch companies. Yet there's 131 that we're tracking, and over 40 of them have received outside capital. So this Mm. is either venture or angel funding. So in most cases, these investors, their investment in a launch company is their first space investment. It's their way to test the waters. And they think, well, Elon has a launch company and Jeff has a launch company and Jared Leto invested in relativity space. So this must be the next right thing to invest in. And so again, it's, it's all based on, on FOMO and, and following celebrities, not in the actual realities of, of the market and whether or not there's the possibility to have a profitable launch company. So we think that that's going to significantly affect investor interest in the industry in the future as so many of these companies fail and those investors lose their entire investment. They're not going to be willing to make another foray into the industry. So what we really saw was missing was that kind of smart aspect to the capital. There is capital that's interested in the industry. There are people who know the industry, but unfortunately, those are not the same people. (laughs) And so we wanted to be that bridge between the capital and the industry, providing that, uh, that knowledge and insight that you can only have once you've you know, lived and breathed this industry for, for a number of years. I've been knee deep in this for a decade and my partner, Rick Tomlinson has been doing this for 30 years. So we really do have that unique perspective that investors need to make the right choices on where to deploy their capital. So that was why we set up space fund was really to kind of bridge that gap and provide investors with a a diversified method of investing um, based on actual knowledge, market insight and data not just on following celebrities, and and there's a and there's a great uh, it, I guess it's it's a lot more than a feature, but it, this database or databases that you've created called the Space Fund Reality Rating Databases, which is really cool, and uh, industry probably could have used oh, it yeah. ten plus years ago. Can you, can you talk about how are your? I mean, some of these companies are some of them are fairly opaque. How are you generating some of this data? Is this just kind of intensive digging? Because You've got a lot of different uh, domain areas within space, ranging from transportation to energy that you're um, that you're focused on. Yeah, that's great. Uh, great question. And the reality ratings, as you guys mentioned, is you know part fun, <laughs> part uh, research we need to do anyway, and part service to the industry just by getting this data out there. As I mentioned, there's this this significant information gap for investors. They don't know much about the industry. They don't know where it's going, and they certainly don't know who the players are. We're currently tracking over 2,000 space startups around the world, and we thought that it was important to, uh, one, let people know that there's that many companies, that this is a strong and growing ecosystem. And then number two, really kind of cut the wheat from the chaff, as they say, right? So often in the space industry, you see these companies that we refer to as PowerPoint companies. 
<laughs> they've got very true. Yeah, they've got a good idea. Um, you know, maybe they've got but, some fancy graphics. I mean, it, it is astounding uh, how much people people are willing to eat up a company who all they're able to do is put up a website and put up together some decent renderings of what they hypothetically could do in 30 years with an unlimited budget. <laughs> right. As as one of my advisors says, whenever he reviews some of these decks, he says, why has nobody ever done anything? Right. It's just, you know, a bunch of kids with some good graphics and they've never actually put anything in space. Right. Not always kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. Not They're not always kids. Sometimes I'm surprised by how quote unquote grown up they they're supposed to be. Though we, we've both played in this industry long enough to know that you don't go into a business where everyone grew up wanting to be an astronaut and find out that and should be surprised that nobody's actually grown up <laughs> by this point. Yeah. You kind of need that uh, fire in the belly. <laughs> well, exactly. And so that's what the Space Fund reality rating is kind of meant to do is to show how far along these companies actually are in their development cycle. And we rate them on three primary things. That's the team, the technology, and the financing. And so that's, you know, kind of a simple way to gauge how real the business is. And it's not just how much money they've raised, but their ability to raise money, their ability to bring in government contracts. One of the things I always say about Elon Musk is that he's proven that he has an unlimited ability to raise money. So it's not about how much money Elon has. It's about the fact that he can just call up SoftBank and get a couple billion dollars anytime he wants, right? He has an unlimited ability to to raise money. Uh, of course, most of the startups we look at do not have that. So, um, And then, of course, if a company has revenue, that, that gets them a, a higher score on the financing side. And then the technology we rate similarly to the NASA TRL scale. And then the team is it's about startup experience. Uh, you know, almost every team we look at has good engineering experience, but do you have the ability to execute is the question that we, we really ask. And a lot of this is publicly available information. A lot of these companies, as you said, Robert, are, are fairly opaque or in, in some cases completely stealth. And so they end up with low ratings because we don't have the data that we need to, to rate them appropriately. We oftentimes find out that those companies who are rated lower than they think they should be rated, we find them reaching out to us to provide additional information to improve their rating, which is which is very useful for us to to get that additional information. And so, yeah, so it's a it's a combination of what we know, who we know, the data we're able to gather. We have a couple of good resources that that we use. And then just our outreach to the community and, and getting feedback from the community as we publish the databases. Now, what really affects a company's rating in terms of customer acquisition? If a company has primarily commercial customers, does that make them more valuable than if they're primarily, if, say, NASA or the military are their customers? Or are they about on equal playing fields there? I mean, So that would be something that we would, if we were to invest in a company, we would want to know what the that ratio is, and we would want that to be higher on the commercial side. But that doesn't affect the reality ratings as such. If the company has revenue, it's revenue. It doesn't matter where it comes from. So few of the companies have revenue. <laughs> Whether it's government revenue or commercial revenue, it doesn't matter. It's just revenue, and that, and that ups the score. There's no worry about the prospect of a period where the government decides they have to start cutting budgets and all of a sudden we have another sequester breathing down our necks and all of a sudden those contracts seem to just dry up. So that that is a concern from the, you know, from the investment perspective, of course, in the space industry, much more so than many others, mm. government customer 
and the government financing for the prototyping stage are both very, very important to this industry. So yes, a, a change in government budgeting, especially towards NASA, would have an effect on the startup environment, and that's definitely a risk we're aware of. One thing that I am really excited about is a shift recently that I've seen actually driven by the Air Force and, and soon-to-be Space Force as they're working more and more to get uh, companies into their SBIR and, and startup accelerator programs and such. One thing you can always count on with the U.S. government is it might cut science programs like NASA, but it's not going to cut the military budgets by much. <laughs> so if the startup environment is getting more and more of their SBIRs and 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 other early stage funding from the Air Force, that actually kind of de-risks that a little bit. I want to thank our guest, Megan Crawford, co-founder and managing partner of Space Fund, for her appearance today on Brave New Space. We're going to have her back, where she's going to, where Megan's going to discuss her new podcast that's just wrapping up its first season called Mission Eve. Hi, listener. My new book, Space is Open for Business, is coming out soon, and I want you to get a sneak preview of it. Head on over to my website, robertjacobson.com, for a first look. Thank you for listening to Brave New Space. This is Robert and Keegan. On the next episode of Brave New Space, we'll be discussing space by the numbers and SpaceX's newest claim that they will be able to produce two starships a week in 2021.